We have been studying the book of Genesis together for a few weeks and uh, taking a look at recently Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which I believe are some of the most important parts of the book of Genesis, which is why we've spent a little more time on them. And uh, today we want to talk about the rise of pain. We talked about the rise of evil some, and you'll remember uh, we discussed a little bit why did God permit evil, and uh, the material on the left gives the reasons why in kind of a logical order. And then we talked about, well then, what is the actual cause of, of sin, of evil? And we discovered that there are a number of threads in Scripture that link together to tell us that God is in no way the cause of sin's origin or its development. And the material in some of those little boxes proves that. Love is surely worth the cost, and that is what God has maintained all along. Love is surely worth the cost, even the cost of the rise and development of evil. So looking back at our story, we're picking up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 is where we're going to begin. We read, then the Lord called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause opposition between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Then the Lord God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you shall return. The tight focus of this portion of Genesis 3 is where we see God thoroughly addressing the situation. But it also leaves the snake in the center as someone to whom God did not address gentle questions to, as he addressed to Adam and Eve. 
It seems as if God and the snake already know each other, and the snake has nothing to add to the discussion. While Adam and Eve are treated, I think, rather gently, the snake is simply presumed to be guilty. And I believe it's because God and the snake were well acquainted with each other. But here we can see that the passages concentrate on the outcome of sin. And here God speaks in reverse order to what is kind of laid out to begin with. First we hear about the, the man and then the woman. The snake comes into the picture. But when God begins to speak, he addresses the snake first then the woman, and then the man. This kind of reverse parallelism in Scripture usually is because somebody is wanting to be thorough and do a complete reversal of what has already happened, but it's also because there's a certain deliberateness to it. Uh, the person is deliberately addressing this situation. And here we discover that the Lord, again, does not ask questions of Satan, but rather begins to speak to the undisputed infector of Adam and Eve, to the serpent. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals. The outcome is very simple. The greater one's influence, the greater one's responsibility. And when a person chooses evil, the more blessed one is, the more cursed one can become. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent is said to be the shrewdest of all creatures. But now, as I said, the more blessed one is, the more one becomes a curse. This is what Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2 actually teaches us. Like a sparrow when it's flitting, like a swallow when it's flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. Choices have consequences. That is the message. If, of course, your choices are good, then your consequences are good. But if your choices are bad, then the outcome is bad as well. In Genesis 3, we read about that outcome. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust. Did you know that Isaiah 30, verse 6, uses the same Hebrew word to describe serpents there as we find in uh, Genesis chapter 3? In Isaiah chapter uh, 30, verse 6, we learn that the serpent was a flying creature. So obviously it's a big step down from flying to groveling and crawling in the dust, right? In fact, um, our own Ellen White wrote this about the serpent. She said, one of the wisest and most beautiful creatures on the earth, describing the serpent, it had wings, and while flying through the air presented an appearance of dazzling brightness having the color and brilliancy of burnished gold. The snake, which is now classified, which used to be classified as a flying creature, the snake is now classified among the creeping, crawling creatures, which in Scripture, interestingly enough, are always and completely labeled as unclean. 
creatures one should never eat. What a letdown. The results of the serpent's choices then are catastrophic. But in his words to the serpent, God offers human beings a huge dose of good news. And I will cause opposition between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is this opposition? In Hebrew, eva means the opposite of goodwill and friendship. From that word, we draw the word enemies in the Bible. Why would God need to cause such an opposition to spring into existence between the snake and her offspring? Why would God need to cause such an opposition? People often think this verse is somehow about our kind of almost natural aversion to snakes, and that is not at all what is being addressed. Not everyone has an aversion to snakes, for example. But by choosing evil, Adam and Eve, and by the way, choosing evil fully against the evidence, supporting the infinite goodness of God, by choosing evil, Adam and Eve had chosen also to agree with the snake regarding God's character. The snake had said about God, you're an almighty tyrant, and the way in which you establish anything on this planet is by lying to people. You shall surely not die, he had said to Eve, in contrast to what God had said. They had agreed, Adam and Eve, with the devil, that this is the kind of person that God is. They had sided with him against God, and they had become evil themselves, as the snake had promised them, that they would know good and evil. They did know evil. They had become sin's victims, sin's uh, captives. And now they are unable to make a good decision, unable to carry forward any good decision. But God did not want this for them. He did not want this for us. And so he created inside of Adam and Eve and all of their offspring an opposition to evil, something he has implanted back inside each of us. By this action of God, we are able to recognize good from bad. Right? We're able to recognize bad for what it is, to recognize good for what it is. We are even made capable of acting on the things that we know to be good or bad. Not perfectly, because now we've become sin-damaged, but certainly we know the difference. And without this God-given opposition to evil, we would have been left in sin's clutches unable to do a single good thing, produce even a single good thought. Our hearts, which had become entirely selfish, and had God not stepped in immediately, our hearts, which had become entirely selfish, can you imagine what the catastrophic problem would have been if our hearts, now entirely selfish, had said, I will no longer pump out the blood that comes to me. I'm going to keep it for myself. 
the end result would have been certain death for Adam and Eve and certain death for everyone on our planet. And had God given us time and not this opposition to evil, we would have spent all of our days bickering, treating each other meanly, treating each other in the worst kind of violent way possible. And if you doubt this, take a look at what did occur immediately. Adam and Eve, husband and wife, previously lovers, now pointing the finger at each other, pointing the finger at the God who in his infinite goodness had created them and put them into a beautiful garden. Go just one generation from there and look at the story of Cain and Abel. You will quickly see what we would have been and even are to some degree today capable of. If God had just given us time and not put in an opposition to evil in our hearts, we would be miserable. And we would make everyone we come in contact, miserable as well. So even with this God-given opposition to evil, and because we too often choose to ignore God in our day-to-day -day lives, we have turned our world into an awful place. Any of you know I started teaching a class on the university uh, level um, this quarter, and I had an assignment for kids to tell me about their spiritual journey. Now, I can't relate personal details or any names because it's personal to them, and I have to keep that confidential. But out of the th three out of the first seven papers that I read involved students whose parent, whose dad particularly, had committed suicide. Three out of the first seven. I have a student this week who has to leave campus in order to attend her father's funeral. Tragic circumstances surrounding his death. The world that we live in is a difficult place, isn't it? Difficult for us as older adults, difficult for young people to grow up in. It's a very hard world that we live in. But thank God that he made a path for us, you know, out of our self-centeredness, out of our misery. Thank God that we have this opposition that God has put back into our hearts. He supernaturally implanted this opposition to evil inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I am extremely grateful that he did. There's more. I will cause opposition between your offspring and her offspring. And this means three things. Because... Um, Seed or offspring in the Bible is an interesting word in Hebrew. It can either be singular or it can be collective. It can mean seed in general, uh, or it can mean uh, a particular seed. Context here suggests maybe both meanings, three things. It would mean, first of all, that God has put this opposition between the snake, the serpent, and the woman and the snake and her offspring, meaning every descendant of Adam and Eve, and in particular, a specific male offspring. 
And the reason for that is twofold, and I'm only going to address one of them, which comes next, but there's another one. There's a passage in 1 Samuel which talks about uh, using the same kind of language, which makes it very clear that the word seed can be used in a singular fashion. But in this case, we have right after speaking about the opposition that has been placed in, in uh, the human heart, we read the third person verb, he will strike, is singular. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So God is talking to the serpent and he's talking about someone else, the single uh, male individual who is going to strike the serpent's head and whom the serpent will strike at his heel. Here we have the first glimpse of the conflict between Jesus and Satan. One of them, of course, is clearly going to win out, uh, as you can tell by the imagery of the striking of a serpent's head. Jesus will strike the devil on his head, meaning he will bring him to an end. It is also true that the devil struck a mortal blow against Jesus, but God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this particular picture that I have on the slide shows this as a physical battle, and there was certainly at times some physicalness to it, uh, at least involving the devil and his use of violence. Jesus, however, did not use violence in return, but rather merely accepted violence against him. Jesus defeated Satan through the manifestation of love. Love so deep that it led Jesus to die on Calvary's cross for you, for me, even though he had never done a single thing wrong. It is Jesus' love that Satan challenged, right? And it is that love that was horrifically tested while Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, but Jesus made it through. All the way to the end, constantly loving other people first, putting others before his own needs. Jesus never strayed away from genuine love. Love for you, love for me, love for everyone in this world. But the mental and physical attacks that Satan leveled against Jesus, they lasted throughout Jesus' entire lifetime. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was constantly attacked, mentally and physically. From the time he was a little baby, where his life was on the line, where someone was trying to literally stomp him out of existence. The time in which they crucified him on Calvary, Jesus mentally and physically was in a battle. There was, however, a series of very specific attacks that we might need to remind ourselves of. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, also found, of course, in Luke, but in Matthew 4 we read, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, the devil said, you need more. You need so much more. I mean, going without food, it's, it's, it's a bad idea. I mean, why not spend time with God here in this desert and eat all the food that you want? Why not do it? You need more. More than God is providing you. To which Jesus said, it is written. One does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The devil then took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus, you need God to protect you better. You need more, more. I mean, God has angels that will keep you safe. If you just put yourself out there a bit, you'll see you need more. And Jesus responded, the scriptures tell us that we should never test God. Then the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Jesus, Jesus, Satan said, you need more. You need way more for much less. And I can give it to you. Way more for much less which Jesus said, get out of here. For the scriptures tell us that we should only worship God. The devil's messages to Jesus, it seems to me, were not a whole lot different than his message to Eve. He said to her, Eve, you need more. You need more than what God is giving you. Wherever Satan goes, he likes to, uh, how can I say this? Wherever he goes, whoever he speaks to, he likes to kind of leave a slimy trail of discontent. It's that time of year, isn't it? You and I are going to be bombarded with television ads and billboard ads telling us we need more. We have to have more. In a time in which, you know, we've kind of, how can we say, we've relegated being thankful to a single day of the year, immediately followed by Black Friday, where someone all over the world will be shouting to us, you need more. You need more. And some of us are going to say, yes, we need more. And we're going to be willing to go into horrific debt so that we can get more. Advertising, it seems to me, which may have begun uh, fairly well with the devil, but uh, at least the negative part of advertising did. I'll say it that way. Maybe there's some good ways to advertise, but advertising has become minimizing the bad results, maximizing supposed desire, the, the possibilities to you and to me. That's what advertising has unfortunately become. We minimize the, the stuff, the cost, or the, the, the bad outcome that could happen. I mean, have, how many of you have ever heard a, um, an advertisement for some kind of a medicine on television. They slowly, beautifully create the situation of your need for their drug, and then in very quick, quick words tell you, 
the side effects, right? Isn't that right? Now, some of those medicines I'm not here to say aren't good or, or couldn't help you, but what I'm saying is it's, it's very indicative of how advertising has uh, kind of become for us. So here we are, you know, uh, the many days of discontent following right after Thanksgiving, uh, unfortunately. The devil loves sowing discontent. So I'm wondering if you and I are snake bit. Maybe you and I have become discontented. Perhaps on the other side, the devil has said, everything's good with you. Instead of discontent, we're very self-contented. I mean, there was a man, after all, who was incredibly thankful. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Mm. And some of us might go down that path instead. Instead of being discontented, self-contented. We don't need a change. We don't need to have God do anything powerful in our lives. Seems to me there's more than enough ways for us to get messed up in life, which is why we need this message that God has placed opposition between us and the serpent. And he made this possible in the life and death of Jesus Christ. We need God to uh, strengthen this opposition that he's placed in our hearts between us and the devil. We need it to be stronger even. We need a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong. And beyond that, of course, we need the power to do what's right and to avoid what's wrong. And that's what I think is offered in this particular promise. God has taken on evil for us. Are you glad? He has taken on evil for us. He has done what we could never have accomplished for ourselves, what we can never do. Whether you and I are in our seasons of discontent or self-contentedness, God is working powerfully in our behalf. God did not allow us to die. He stepped in and he took our consequences upon himself. While we are still mercifully living, God has also not left us to wallow in selfishness and defeat. He's made it very clear that our opposition to evil can actually grow. Did you know that? Your opposition to evil can actually grow. In Jesus' parables, we see how it was that an enemy sowed weeds among the wheat. God has never planted a single nauseous weed, not one. Even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not poisonous. Jesus said, an enemy has done this. But instead, God did what he, could, what he did, what he could do, what we could never do, and he took on the devil and he won, but not through violence. So I'm asking you, would you like your life to be better? Would you like it to be stronger? Would you like it to be more productive, more useful? 
If so, would you like your, by the way, your life to be more spiritual? If so, then why not embrace God? Why not ask him to strengthen your opposition to evil? Your opposition to evil uh, is a powerfully good tool to make it through life, unscathed in many ways. And how is it that you and I can do that? How can we, can we help you know, God grow our opposition to evil? Well, one of the ways is to pray, to take all of our cares and concerns and lay them at, at God's feet. The other is to read our Bibles, to study them carefully and ask God, can I become more like you? What is it that you want me to take from this passage of Scripture? What is it that you want me to do to change my life for the better? We can engage in unselfish service to other people and choke out the selfishness that is so naturally a part of us as descendants of Adam and Eve. We can share our faith with other people. We can do all these things and more to cooperate with God in strengthening our opposition to evil. Why let evil make a train wreck of your life or my life? Why not instead turn to God? Why not? Are you willing to make that commitment today? Let's pray. Father God, thinking about this story where Adam and Eve had made horrific decisions that not only involved them, but also involved us. And if you had not stepped in and put opposition to evil back into humanity's hearts. We'd either be dead or horribly miserable. So we thank you today for putting this sense of right and wrong back into our lives to help us steer clear of evil and choose the good. And Father, I pray that you will work in each of our hearts uh, such that we will also want to cooperate with you, though we know it's a choice we get to make on our own in another sense. You will not make it for us. Would you help us, though, each of us, to think seriously about the choices that we're making? Father, I pray that everyone here will choose the good and choose ways uh, in their lives that they might strengthen their opposition to evil. Help us, God, to be the people, the unselfish people that you want us to be. Live in our lives as a blessing to others and not as a curse.